I'm jazz artist Brettina, and I love listening to The Alvin Galloway Show every Sunday, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. on RadioPhoenix.org for conversation, information, music, and culture. So stay tuned as you tune in for an intellectual tune-up on The Alvin Galloway Show. How do we see our lives? Is it everything we have? Welcome to the Alvin Galloway Show here on KRDP. On this segment, the topic is, is racial and ethnic hatred on the rise? When is hate a crime? How do we measure hate? Can hate be healed? This is through a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services. Racial and ethnic hate, both interpersonal expressions of hate and acts of violence, is on the rise, along with deepening political polarization, distrust of civic institutions, widening racial, ethnic, and class divides. In California, the state legislature has just launched an initiative called Stop the Hate to support nonprofits and ethnic media working to address the issue. But what is hate? How do we measure it? When is hate a crime? And can we stop it, even heal it? Ethnic Media Services Director Sandy Close caused this discussion of racial and ethnic hate across all communities. Hate 101. Speakers addressing these issues are Manusha Kokarni, Director of AAPI Equity Alliance and co-founder of Stop AAPI Hate. Becky L. Monroe, Deputy Director of Strategic Initiatives and External Affairs, California Civil Rights Development. Soshani Yi, Transformational Justice Activist for Victims of Hate. And Brian Levin, Director, Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism, Cal State San Bernardino. Moderating today's session is Ethnic Media Services Associate Editor, Sunita Shirachi. When I first came to Arizona in the late 70s to attend college, one evening a friend and I were walking down one of Phoenix, Arizona's main street, and a car passed and called us to inward a car full of young white males. Now, my friend and I, we initially didn't know who they were talking to because actually I had never been called the word before coming from Illinois and also spending many summers in my home, my parents' home state of Mississippi. I had never been called the N-word. I knew of the N-word. I know of its history, but personally, I had never been called the N-word. 
And then a few months later, I was called the N-word again by my first apartment manager. And there had been other instances of racial verbal attacks and almost physical attacks. And on this show, we will look at what is the motivating factor, how is it being reported, and if it is being reported of racial hate and violence in this country. So stay tuned to the Alvin Galloway Show here on KRDP. Nina Simone, I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. Um, let's get right to it. We begin with Becky Monroe. Uh, Becky, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. 
I take this opportunity very seriously. I have eight minutes that I have started now. I have more than eight minutes of information. So I really do hope that you will follow up with me afterwards if you have any questions or if we can be uh, helpful. I'm going to give you a very brief introduction to our agency. And that is just because it helps to explain how we are approaching combating hate in California as a very comprehensive approach that recognizes that hate does not happen in a vacuum. So we are the civil rights department. We enforce other anti-discrimination provisions. I am not going to go into detail about the breadth of our jurisdiction, but I wanted you to understand that part of the reason we are focused on combating hate incidents and hate crimes is that we at CRD are already in the business of combating discrimination in employment and in housing in public accommodations or businesses. And we recognize that if we are truly going to address hate incidents and hate crimes, we have to make sure we are enforcing all of our civil rights protections. So as I mentioned, I will not go through each of these, but I did want you to see the breadth of how we approach this issue. And this breadth is also uh, reflected in the, our approach in terms of really centering survivors, victims of hate crimes, and recognizing that while some may want to go to law enforcement to seek additional support, for many, that does not feel like a safe option. And so we are providing other options as well. One of the things that Sandy asked me to do at the top was to just give a brief introduction or a brief uh, definition of how we see hate crimes and hate incidents. I am so thrilled to be on this panel with the other people who you will be hearing from today because they truly are the nation's leaders in thinking about how we comprehensively address these issues. So I'm giving this with the, with the caveat that they may have much more to add. When we talk about what a hate crime is, when you hear people talk about a hate crime, the basic definition under California law is not gonna be that different than you will see across the country. Cause I understand there are people on this call who are outside of California as well. So a hate crime is when there is a criminal act that is committed in whole or in part because of one or more of the following actual or perceived characteristics. I won't go through those characteristics but you will hear civil rights lawyers talk about protected characteristics. These are characteristics that are protected under our laws in the, in the, under the constitution and under state laws because there is a long history of targeting people for discrimination on the basis of those characteristics. That is a hate crime. A hate incident, we generally think of in two different categories. So, one category of hate incidents are actually violations of civil rights laws. So those are civil rights laws that are not criminal laws. So one might not go to prison for them or to jail for them, but they are violations of civil rights laws. That is where you see our protections around employment discrimination, housing discrimination. Many of those acts will still feel like an expression of, of, of hate targeting someone because of a protected category. The second category are incidents or acts of hate that may not violate the law, but are still deeply harmful. 
So I think it is important that we have these definitions because as you report on this work, you will hear people talk about, well, this was an incident and not a crime or you know, talking about trying to make those distinctions. There's some really important things I think we need to all kind of be on the same page about with respect to incidents and crimes. And, and again, in particular with Stop API Hate on this call, they have been at the forefront of really emphasizing that we cannot discount something because it doesn't rise to the level of crime because it still causes deep harm in a community. It, at the California Civil Rights Department, we are engaged in launching something called California versus Hate, which will be a resource line and network to support people who are targeted for hate. And we are intentionally saying we will support people targeted for hate incidents or crimes. There are many reasons for doing this. One, as you will hear from Stop AAPI Hate, the majority of people who are reporting hate incidents and hate crimes are reporting incidents. They are not necessarily reporting crimes, yet they still have a devastating impact on a community. We also ought not be asking victims of hate crimes or hate incidents to know whether or not they were in fact the victim of a crime as defined under our statute or an incident. They know they were targeted because of who they are and they know it was harmful. So we wanna make sure we provide them with resources and support. I, because of our, our time limitations today, I won't go very far into this, but I do want you to know that in the state of California, and we believe um, in line with what the federal government is encouraging states to do, we are combating this in a very comprehensive way that again, recognizes for many people targeted for hate, they some may want to go to law enforcement. For those who don't, there are other options. And that's why I the other speakers who will be speaking about restorative practices, I think are particularly important for us all to learn from. Um, this community-centered approach for us means we will identify options and next steps for individuals and communities targeted for hate. We will connect people with culturally competent resources and support and we will try to improve the data collection. I'm gonna end, and, and this will be a brief introduction to this, but I have a feeling that my, my friend Brian Levin will, will provide more background on this. One of the things when you're reporting on hate crimes is you are going to see a tremendous amount of data sources. So I wanted to just lay out the different sources that you may, may see the most of, and provide some context for why we know that hate crimes are underreported. You will see here, I've listed the, and, and, and I say this as someone who used to work at the Department of Justice and was proud of our work, but also recognized we had a long way to go in terms of accurately reporting hate crimes. Um, there's federal data, state data, data from scholars like Brian Levin at the Center on Hate and Extremism, and then data from really critical organizations like Stop AAPI Hate that have earned the trust of communities. So I will, I think I need to end there because I'm not coming up on my eight minutes, but I just want to tell you, there is no question when you look at the data that hate crimes are on the rise, but they are also underreported. <laughs> and the way we know it is underreported is that the same Department of Justice that tells us, as you see in this slide, 
that there are approximately a little over 8,000 hate crimes committed in a year, that same DOJ, we actually acknowledge that it's closer to 250,000 a year. So this, as we say, is not a rounding error. This is a real problem in how we are reporting hate crimes. Data matters because if you are from a community that is targeted for hate, you will know if your department is reporting zero hate crimes, it will feel like maybe that police department isn't out there to protect you. So I just, I, I and, and yet we also know police departments are working hard to try and earn back that trust. And there are departments that are doing better on this, but I wanted you to see this disparity because the other thing you're going to hear is you're gonna learn from our colleagues, from, from, from Manju and from, from Brian, you are gonna hear that the numbers are, there's no question these numbers are underreported. I just wanted to frame that the Department of Justice itself, we acknowledge that those numbers are underreported. Um, and I will just end by saying, as we think about this, one of the things reporters can do is make sure we are not, you that there's not a furthering of, of sort of sharing information that is not accurate. And that includes with respect to who is a victim and who are the perpetrators of hate crimes. The majority of hate crimes are, are perpetrated by white men. You will see some high profile uh, incidents that are, are, are trying to, to exploit and divide our communities. The majority of victims of hate crimes in the United States are African-Americans and black people, and they have always been. The, we have seen horrific increases in hate crimes targeting the Asian-American Pacific Islander community and the black community and Muslims and Jews and many other communities. But I think it is important that we not let communities be divided. And I will end there. So I, if there's questions, I'm also, I may have eaten into my time a little bit on questions, so I apologize. Okay, thank you. There are a number of questions for you, but I wanted to um, ask you just to explain a little bit that um, reporting hate crime is voluntary by law enforcement in several communities. Is that correct? That's correct. So if you look at the, at the federal reporting data, which is the data you're going to see most often cited in media reports, is the Uniform Crime Report from the FBI. That data, uh, the, the FBI is mandated to collect that hate crimes data, but state and local law enforcement agencies are not mandated to provide it. And I, you know, one thing I wanted to, to flag on that point is that we, if you look, 85% of the law enforcement agencies that do report hate crimes to the UCR report that zero hate crimes occurred in their jurisdiction. That includes tremendous number of cities, over 100,000 people. It's simply not credible that no hate crimes occurred there, but it is in fact voluntary. You will see from advocates, from survivors, from victims who have been pushing for mandatory reporting just for this reason, because the data is not accurate. And behind every person who is reported and who is not reported, there is a person who has loved ones and who is not, and that, that information is not being captured. I also think that from a law enforcement perspective, it makes it harder for them to do their jobs. They are not getting the accurate data they need to have data-driven sort of uh, you know, law enforcement. And finally, again, if you are in a community and you know people are being targeted for hate, and yet your 
police department or your city or your state continues to report zero hate crimes, that sends a very powerful message. Absolutely. Programming on KRDP is supported by Native Health, located at 4041 North Central Avenue, Building C, at the southeast corner of Central Avenue and Indian School Road in Phoenix. Native Health provides primary medical, dental, behavioral health, WIC, and wellness services for the urban Native American community. More information is available at 602-279-5262 or online at nativehealthphoenix.org.
Call it what it is. This is the Alvin Galloway Show, and we return to a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services. Let's start with our first question from Cesar Naku. Cesar? Um, I have been following uh, incidents of uh, hate crimes with the, among Filipinos, and uh, many of them tell me that uh, actually they start to be victims of hate incidents, if not crimes, when they are still in the elementary years. They are being yes. bullied. Do you consider this a hate crime or incidents? I think, um, I, first of all, thank you. And I, I, um, I have to say earlier this week, I, I met a family, you may have heard about this case in North Hollywood, a, a, a Filipino American family who was viciously attacked while in line at, at McDonald's and um, the family has come forward in order to help protect other people as well. So I, I did want to note that. I would say it depends. And that I'm saying that as a lawyer and I know people don't like it when lawyers say it depends, but there are some, I would say many acts that happen in schools are hate incidents. They very well may be violations of civil rights laws. As a former uh, person who worked at the civil rights division, I will say, when there are acts of discrimination and bullying in schools, sometimes that discrimination does violate a student's rights to go to school free from discrimination. So I think that is absolutely, sometimes it is a hate incident that is a violation of civil rights laws. Of course, there could be horrific acts that happen on in schools that could rise to the level of a crime as well. So I think it depends, but I think you are focusing on a really critical issue that we need to address, which is, hate occurring in elementary schools, um, it, you know, as young as, as, as elementary. And I think it, it is something that we need to address and that people are trying to address. Next question comes from Julia Najib. Julia, please ask your question. It's a good one. Thank you, Julia Deli Najib. Omni News, I, I wear two hats, Omni News for our California market and also Black Headline News. And I'm glad that we're really addressing this hate crimes issue because I was there when Malcolm Boyd was beat to a pulp in Central Valley and the president, John Welty at the time, considered it an isolated incident. This is the same thing that I'm also seeing in the workplace because Prop 209 seems to shelter some of the circumstances and properties. And so I was wondering, is there an interference and conflict with that? Because I've seen people in the workplace be try to report an incident or report a hate crime and somehow Prop 209 covers that and says, oh, well, no, we, we look at everyone. And I feel like it's a blanket approach. Thank you again. Yeah, thank you for the question. And I, I have to admit, I don't, I'm not familiar with, enough with Prop 209 to know, to be able to respond to your question fully. I will tell you the issue that there are, there is absolutely uh, 
a connection between the failure to address employment discrimination on the basis of race and hate crimes. We cannot separate the two. That's partly why I think we at the California Civil Rights Department were asked to launch California versus hate because I think there was a recognition that we should not be separating them. I also want to note, um, in particular because of your role with Black Headline News, I think that it is important that we see this work connected to the work of the Task Force on Reparations for the State of California. Again, recognizing that we have to confront our ongoing history of racism and discrimination to address hate crimes today. Thank you. And um, our final question for you comes from Jorge Luis Macias. Jorge, could you please ask your question about Latino street vendors? That is such an important question. Yes. Uh, well, I have two questions. Okay. The, well, the but just ask one. the one, please, okay. because we're running right. out of time. Le, le, okay. La, Latino vendors in the streets in Los, of Los Angeles have been rolled, physically attacked, and even murdered. And uh, these incidents are happening on a monthly basis. Uh, particularly, uh, they, they are being robbed, attacked by African-American people. And how these incidents or how these attacks can be considered as a hate crime? So I think, so. Uh, I wanted to respond to two things. One is I'm grateful for you raising the issue around street vendors. Um, before I worked in the Obama administration, I was a workers' rights lawyer for, for low-wage workers in Los Angeles and had the opportunity to represent a lot of vendors and I know the kind of discrimination they confront. If someone is targeted because of their race, color or national origin in this context, then and if, if, if a prosecutor can, can prove that that was what the motivation was, sometimes the person will yell something, sometimes there will be other evidence, then it could be charged as a hate crime. Um, I think that the question is always whether someone was targeted because of their race. And what I hear from you saying is that you think that in many of those cases, that is the case. So I think one of the things we can do as a community is better better recognize and respond to all acts of hate and make sure, and this is another piece, are we listening to the communities who are targeted for hate? Have we heard from those vendors or their families? If we are not listening to them, then you are absolutely right. We may miss the fact that there was an inc hate incident or a hate crime attack uh, there. So that's part of what I talk about. When I'm talking about reporting, I am not only talking about reporting for the purposes of prosecution, and talk about reporting so we have a better understanding of the risks that people face when they're just trying to go to work. And I just have to say, I, I know I can't get to the questions, but I see questions. Absolutely, we should address every act of hate. And if you are covering, I saw from Pilar, there was a question from um, about, you know, should we talk about incidents? We absolutely should. I just want to make sure that when we are talking about the actual numbers and the broader picture understanding who is committing the majority of hate crimes, it continues to be white people. And I don't want to lose that because as we think about how to combat hate, we have to address the white supremacy that is driving that. Thank you Thank so you. much, Becky. We move on next to Professor uh, Levin from Cal State uh, San Bernardino. Professor Levin, welcome. A couple of things. First of all, um, the latest Bureau of Justice Statistics victimization study shows that hate crimes uh, have, have uh, unreported have gone down to only around 200,000. But even if you use that number, it's still 1% of violent crimes. That's astounding. That's an astounding, for a criminologist, 
That's an astounding number. And they're using the lower numbers now. Another interesting thing that they found uh, towards the end of last decade is the majority of victims are reporting, a slight majority, but in the communities that are most vulnerable, they're not. And what else? Real big issues with the data, whole swaths of the South. So you got to take all this with a grain of salt. But the bottom line is we know there's massive underreporting that's many times what the FBI is finding. There's some white noise around the data, okay? Uh, we have issues with regard to data from law enforcement, uh, many discrepancies. Pennsylvania reported a record last year uh, in their preliminary, but they only found one each for Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. When I went to Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, they had many more than that, about 170 or so. So even without that, and even with, with a little bit of the obstacles that are out there, we found some interesting things. So let me tell you what we found real, uh, real quick. Into 2022, we have about a 5% increase first half. LA is flat. Uh, New York and Chicago are up, for instance. Just got San Jose. I haven't even been able. It looks, it looks about the same, give or take. Here's the thing, though. Hate crimes, particularly in conflictual, when I say conflictual, where, where there's really a contest, a national election years, hate crimes go up a lot. We've seen a lot uh, a correlation with regard to politics. November 2016, worst year in 14. Uh, and then the day after election day was the worst year, uh, a worst day rather than 13 years. Let's look at what we found uh, on this slide here. 224% rise in anti-Asian hate crimes using preliminary municipal data. Now the FBI can shave some of that and we've seen it. Sometimes local agencies count differently. They might count by event as opposed to victims. LA counts victims. If, if I went to a house of worship and uh, uh, committed an assault against three people. LA would count as three victims. State and FBI count as one. You get the idea. But like what I'm saying is, it doesn't matter. It's going through the roof. So even if the FBI shaves this stuff, anti-Asian 2020, 2021. Now remember, we already had about a 5% increase so far this year. Limited number of cities, 15 to 23, but that's a decent clip. 369 is more than the records we had in 95, 96, or 355. 224% rise. Now, last year we found 146% rise and the FBI found out half that. Why is that? Because cities are more diverse and more densely populated. So give an example. Becky was talking about this. She was right. Um, Anti-Asian hate crime offenders in the United States in 2020. What, what, we, are, what we are finding is uh, similar to what Becky was saying. Anti-Asian hate crimes rose to what looks like a record, 224%. And nationally, the majority were white. However, in cities that are more diverse, remember, nation overall, majority white. However, that's not the case of the 50 largest cities. So it will match somewhat what the arrest patterns are for the cities generally. So that's something. Also, mentally ill offenders. Uh, we're seeing a, a lot of those. 40% in New York City in 2020 were preliminary classified as that. 40, uh, that was 40% in 2020 of anti-Asian perpetrators. In 2021 through May, about 47%. But anyway, we ha we're having uh, over 40% increases in anti-Latino, in anti-gay, anti-Jewish, also anti-Muslim, up 45%. So uh, real big increases. African-Americans uh, remain, uh, not the majority, not the majority, but the plurality. And interestingly enough, tectonic shift with anti-Black crimes. When you look at it over a four-year stint, 
even if things bounce around, we're up at elevated levels with regard to totals and with regard to violence, they're getting more violent. We're also seeing kind of uh, oftentimes a, a group carouseled into the spotlight, but hate crimes rising quite a bit around political and other events. I'll give an example, December 6, 2019, when impeachment was announced against Donald Trump, that was the worst day of the year for hate crime. So we're seeing that kind of insurrection effect. We're also seeing older offenders. So when we talk about like non-carceral, and I'm totally, I'm on board, but there's a sliver of like white supremacist violent people and, and other violent people who, who, who may not uh, benefit from that and society may not. But bottom line is they're not getting prosecuted. When Gascon, the LADA, was going to stop prosecuting bias enhancements, there were only three felony hate crime cases in the pipeline, and L.A. County is the largest county in the United States. So uh, only three. Two were transgender attacks, and one was a racial attack with a shovel by someone doing a Hitler, uh, they were doing Hitler salutes. So they were serious felonies. But bottom line is, if you look at Texas, um, over the last 10 years, we have like maybe 20 prosecuted we're not talking a lot. You can look in, look in our report. We could go forward. Um, this just shows you the difference in cities. Uh, how uh, And if you look at the, the, the red, those are records for 2021. But cities are more diverse. So you, yeah, naturally, you'll have more offenders of color in cities that have more people of color, you know. Uh, uh, and, and then like, you know, people on certain cable channels try to make a big deal of things. But this is the real data. Go, 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 go with the go with the off brand here on this one. Let's look at another uh, the next slide real quick. This just gives you a visual example of what uh, hate crimes looked across various cities in 2021. Um, and if we could just go to the next slide, this is the last decade. And here's what I wanted to talk about. Anti-black as a proportion of hate crimes was dropping from 1996 through 2019. It shot up to 35% of all hate crimes again in 2020. And that influenced the whole decade stat. I just, I just think that's in, interesting. It's all, uh, we're gonna send it to you. Also, this is what hate crimes look by city. If you could go to the next slide. It varies by city and population. If you have more people rubbing elbows who are XY than PDQ, you get more people rubbing elbows. And so you, you can see uh, uh, Jews, are much more represented in big cities and in particular New York City. So that's why you see a lot of them there. The next slide shows, we, we looked at 18 states in DC. See that dark stuff? That's records. Now, big discrepancies in how these states count. We don't have time. New Jersey counted 1,400 last year in a record. The FBI said they had 367 in a decrease. This year they say they have 1,800. Wheel of fortune. Uh, by the way, some other discrepancies with data. FBI says Nebraska had 72 hate, hate crime incidents. But when you go in and see what they were, they say 991 of them were intimidation. So I think somebody made a typo. Um, uh, and if we could just go to the very last slide. I have two more, and that's going to be it. Um, extreme, extremist homicide. All right, well, homicides rose in 2021. But we have a real wiggle room because some of them are so amorphous. And we have some Nazi Aryan stuff that we're still trying to classify. But we look at motivated by extremism. But we had an increase from 18 to 31. Let's go to the next slide. I'm going to close up with that. Look at this, how catalytic events influence spikes in hate crime. If you look at the very end, though, that hate crime spike is elongated. June 2020 was the worst month for anti-Black hate crime since we've been recording stuff. 
There's also a spike in anti-white, but if you look real close, it extended months and months and months. Usually it's a matter of weeks. So there's an elasticity and a stickiness. They're getting more violent. And part of that is a socio-political uh, milieu we're in and how, uh, how uh, social media has become an incubator and, and toxic cauldron uh, of this stuff. And, and so, so when people ask, I say, uh, uh, listen up, stand up, do something. Uh, we have to look at what's the social media company's role. And we also have to, by the way, I'm really in agreement, non-carceral victim services, because you know what, when we just measure crimes, we're not, we're not looking at the, the, the type of impact uh, that we know going back to the 80s that this has on victims with sometimes things that w would technically be crimes, but not prosecuted as it. So anyway, thank you so much for having me. Uh, and I look forward to your questions. Professor Levin, there are so many questions for you, and, but we'll start out with our co-moderator, Pilar Marrero. Pilar, please ask your question. Dr. Levin, thank you so much. Uh, you mentioned that mental health is a, is a big issue that uh, perpetrators um, are often mentally ill. Um, we've seen a number of attacks here in LA and in other places perpetrated by homeless people, people who you know, live on the streets. Is this, is this what you're talking about, people who are out on the streets and with untreated mental illness committing well, these have, types of crime? You don't have to be necessarily out in the streets. There are some people who are veterans who are serial offenders. But listen to this. In Pittsburgh, one third of the hate crimes there were committed by one offender. Um, uh, we saw serial offenders in San Francisco commit maybe about 30 to 40 percent of the increase, attack 20, over 20 stores. So we're seeing serial offenders that might be mentally ill. Also, though, some are homeless, but also we're seeing homeless as victims. Uh, for the first part of this century, there were more homeless people murdered by domicile people and apparent bias attacks. National Coalition for the Homeless has that data than all the other combined. That's changing a little bit because we're having these just horrible mass killings, which are repeating and repeating. Uh, but the bottom line is, yes, I think that's a, an important observation. And thank you for the question. And Cora Oriel has the next question. Cora? Yes. Um, have we ever done a study of those who were arrested, what is the common response when questioned by for the reason why they do what they, you know, what they did? That's such a great question. Uh, more, more like I think uh, qualitative studies. But look, Billy, some interesting observations, and it's sometimes going to fly a little bit. With uh, there's there's no major definitive studies, but there's some interesting stuff. Billy Johnson, when he did decoys as the second hate crime commander in Boston, when he's beaten up out of a, a outside a gay bar, they broke his socket, broke his jaw. I mean, he was he was badly injured. Um, they said, no, we're, we're 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 he's a blank. We're doing this for the community. So when we hear like gays being described as groomers or immigrants as dirty or carrying disease, which is like every night on a major watch cable channel. Uh, which has banned me for pointing that out, but that's okay. Um, that's a problem because Dr. Robin Williams spoke of a printed circuit of stereotypes that defines certain people as legitimate uh, targets of aggression. So there are different types of people that do this. There are people who are first offenders doing it for excitement. They're young, uh, uh, and intoxicated. But one of the things that Billy told me was they didn't have a reason. After they started enforcing the hate crime laws in Boston, and even the regular laws, because it was like a year lag, 
hate crimes dropped, and this is documented, Wexler and Marx in the Journal of Criminology. Um, hate crimes dropped from 673 to the 200s. But we also found in San Bernardino, we didn't have hate crimes after the San Bernardino attack because we all moved together. And there's some evidence J James Nolan is doing on resilient communities. So that's what I like. There's no one size fits all. I think that incarcerate everyone message is, is, is not good. But there are some people who are recidivist, violent, and dangerous folks. But remember, if you send people to prison, that's a crash course for hate as well. So uh, I, I hope that kind of untangles some of the issues from that question. Our last question for you comes from Henrietta Burroughs. Henrietta, please ask your question for Professor Levin. Thank you so much, Sunita. Um, Professor Levin, you talked about hate crimes being correlated with uh, the arrests. And I'm just thinking if more white people are not arrested and more people, communities of color are arrested, is that really a, a true reflection of who's committing the crimes? Oh, a great question. Um, it's a true reflection of arrest patterns in that particular city. And when you nationalize it, oh, absolutely. Look, let's look at the other way. If we had places, give you an example, like um, Georgia was reporting like one hate crime in like 2019 and then four, um, I'm sorry, Atlanta rather, or you Southern states that are reporting a handful, a dozen or, or two. And those are the states with the highest populations of African-Americans. You're actually gonna have a lower representation of arrests of hate crimes against Af African-Americans because in city like, cities like Huntsville, ProPublica found Supervisors are telling people not to process hate, uh, law enforcement, not to prosecute hate crimes. Plus, we have departments that hire bigots and extremists. We have people who are like Oath Keeper members. We have constitutional sheriffs. Um, look at how many hate crimes prosecuted by the Riverside County Sheriff, who was also a former Oath Keeper, who gave them a defense after January 6th. So we have a variety of reasons, lack of training. Here in California, real quick, uh, a bill that would make hate crime uh, procedures and policies mandatory uh, died. So we hope to uh, repeat that again with a, a bill the following year, but we need a variety of messages. I just wouldn't count out law enforcement, particularly in, in large cities where you have hate crime units. Look at LA, look at Orlando Martinez. He's no bigot. He, I, I call him, I say, hey, can I have stats? He's like, Brian, I got to catch a perp. I mean, and I'm talking about serious felonies where gay people, transgender hate crimes in LA and New York have doubled. We have to make sure for the sliver of most violent offenders that we have a variety of options available. Uh, while we should definitely shift our focus to education, civics, victim servicing, uh, as, as well as the kind of educational endeavors that you're doing today. And thank you. This is the Alvin Galloway Show here on RadioPhoenix.org. One way you can support Radio Phoenix is by becoming one of our sustaining donors. For your financial gift, sustainers receive discounts, savings, and other benefits provided by our sustainer program partners. And don't forget, your financial contribution is tax deductible. For more information or to sign up, call 602-254-6636 or go online to RadioPhoenix.org and click on the Donate tab on the top menu. And we thank you for your general support of Community Radio.
We move next to um, Manjusha Kulkarni, the uh, co-founder of Stop AAPI Hate. Manjusha, welcome. Pleasure to be with you all and uh, an honor to join uh, with Brian and Becky um, on this important panel. So I'll be talking uh, very quickly about um, understanding hate against Asian American communities. Um, I wanted to just start off very quickly with a few examples of incidents we've received um, across the nation at Stop AAPI Hate. Um, my organization, AAPI Equity Alliance, is one of the co-founders of Stop AAPI Hate. Um, you'll see here an act of uh, workplace discrimination at the top, followed by physical assault underneath, a case in which um, elderly individuals were accosted with hate speech. And then the incident on the right there that really got us started on this work, which was a case of bullying in a local uh, Los Angeles school. Um, and so because of what we saw as the emergence of anti-AAPI hate, we co-founded Stop AAPI Hate with Chinese for Affirmative Action, San Francisco State University. And so in the two years of doing the report, um, this is some of the data we have found. Um, 11,000 incidents from all 50 states in the District of Columbia a majority of those taking place in those spaces that are open to the public. Um, so you see public parks and streets, as well as businesses. Um, and then a large percentage of individuals uh, who are attacked are, according to our data, are women. Uh, and then also other vulnerable populations uh, include youth and seniors who are also disproportionately impacted by the hate. Um, and then you see here in terms of the types of discrimination, 63% um, involve verbal harassment, uh, physical assault is next at 16%, uh, then avoidance or shunning, civil rights violations, including refusal of service, being barred um, or prevented from access to transportation and transit. Uh, and then online harassment. Uh, what's important to note is that, um, you know, a majority of these we know are traumatic, uh, harmful, but they are not hate crimes. Um, and I wanna talk about that a little bit more um, in a minute, but just to keep in mind that the vast majority of these are hate incidents uh, and not hate crimes. Uh, again, you see from this data, um, what, uh, where they take place. So uh, I mentioned public streets, parks, sidewalks, businesses uh, that are open to the public. We also see um, while smaller numbers are schools and universities, we know over the course of the two years, you know, schools were still remote, universities were um, holding online classes. So that's why we think that number is sort of artificially small. You see there too that hospitals and medical practices have been impacted as well. Um, and then in terms of populations, Chinese, um, Korean, Japanese American, sort of uh, near the top in terms of those East Asian communities. We also have uh, significant numbers of reports by uh, Filipinos, Vietnamese, also individuals who identify as biracial and also white. 
uh, and then smaller numbers of South Asian Americans, uh, predominantly Indian American, and then Pacific Islanders also experiencing that hate. So the key takeaways in terms of our data are that racial discrimination affects all of our communities and that intersectionality matters. That's why we're seeing, of course, that women um, are targeted specifically within the Asian American and Pacific Islander community. As I said before, most of these are hate incidents and not hate crimes. And so that really should encourage us to know and understand that a one-size-fits-all solution does not work, um, and that policing is not going to be the answer to all of our problems here, right? We need uh, a comprehensive civil rights infrastructure, and I'm so pleased that Becky is on to talk about um, what California is doing and the civil rights uh, department specifically, because that's exactly what we need, and we need that all across the country. Um, we have programs, somebody had asked in the chat, where do we report hate incidents? Um, and so, you know, certainly I would encourage you to report to Stop API Hate, but you should also report to Calaver, uh, California versus Hate, and if you're in the Los Angeles area, LA v. Hate. Um, there's not one profile of perpetrators, and contrary to popular belief or what you may have seen in mainstream media, African Americans do not make up a majority of those who are causing harm. Um, and then the last uh, point is that these are not just simply interpersonal attacks, but also structural decisions and policies. So we know that public charge, um, we know that programs like the mass deportations of Southeast Asians by our federal government, many of those things um, really perpetrate uh, harm against our communities, but also perpetuate um, hate and discrimination by individuals. Um, so as I end, I just want to point out, we have a five-pronged approach at Stop API Hate not only to serve as a leading aggregator um, of these incidents, but also to provide resources, technical assistance, community-based safety measures. And we're advocating for local, state, and national policies. And we have two bills currently in the state legislature in California to address those harms. Uh, and have been working with uh, folks from our uh, you know, state officials and governor all the way up to our president and members of uh, the US DOJ. Uh, and then, you know, these are the three core areas, civil rights, community safety, and educational equity. And the last slide I wanna share is just to encourage folks to report to us. Um, we also have resources available at Stop API Hate. Um, for communities and they are available in multiple Asian languages. People can also report in multiple Asian languages. And um, before I close, I wanna just point out, in addition to our work at Stop API Hate, API Equity Alliance is the regional lead for Los Angeles's Stop the Hate work. Um, Kieran Bulla is our project director. She's on um, and uh, she is uh, available anytime to take questions. She'll put her uh, email address in the chat. We are leading an effort of 25 organizations in Los Angeles, and that's part of the larger state grant. 
we also have a transformative grant that addresses mental health issues in our communities that uh, arise out of um, the hate that AAPIs are experiencing uh, in Southern California. So I'll stop there. Thank you, Manchu. I would like you um, to. I would like to uh, take the questions from reporters, but I wanted to start out by asking: uh, You have developed a toolkit. Uh, Stop AAPI hate has developed a toolkit that people can use to address um, street crimes. I believe. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, sure. So, you know, as part of our efforts, we want to make sure that people know what to do if they experience hate what to do if you um, experience it yourself, what to do if you witness it. Um, and then, as you pointed out, there are a number of resources um, on uh, our website that go into you know, details. We certainly think that a public health approach is what's most appropriate in addressing uh, street harassment. And that's why also in terms of uh, the bills that we have, we're really uh, hoping that the legislature will begin to look at this issue and determine what exactly we need from um, in terms of our governmental responses, because community-based organizations or individuals cannot do this alone. Um, but I encourage folks to go to our website to take a look at that and uh, happy to um, address any other questions. Sure. Let's move to Floyd Alvin Gallo. And I'll... Floyd, why don't you go ahead and ask your question? Okay, my question, I'm Floyd Alvin Gallo with the Alvin Gallo Show. And um... KRDP in Phoenix. Uh, my question, especially in Phoenix, we have uh, a number of Trump endorsed politicians who have put out various rhetoric. Do you see, uh, and this come any of the uh, speakers, do you see an increase in hate crimes or uh, um, from this rhetoric that the candidates will be uh, putting out as a midterms approach? Right. Thank you for that question. And actually, um, it's as if uh, you teed it up perfectly for um, a point I was going to make, which is that we have a report coming out on racialized rhetoric and the impact it has on uh, AAPI communities specifically. We did a similar report in 2020, Floyd, where we looked at ways in which not only President Trump, but many different um, uh, political leaders and candidates really inflamed um, uh, in using rhetoric, the hate uh, that we see. Obviously, uh, President Trump himself was pretty notable, but in fact, um, there was sadly a GOP 50-page uh, brief to candidates on how to talk about COVID as a anti-Chinese virus. So it was actually a, a coordinated effort. This was a, a document that was uh, leaked to reporters. And so it's not simply one off by one politician here or there. Sadly, it's across the aisle. And so we even see, um, you know, Tim Ryan, who's a candidate for Ohio Senator, who's a Democrat, who's using similar type of anti-Chinese language. So absolutely, that plays a role in uh, in what we're seeing. And in fact, in our 2020 report, we were able to show ways in which the incidents that were reported to us included some of the same rhetoric that was used by um, politicians. If I could, if I could just interject on that real quick, um, Will Carlos of Reveal found hundreds of cases 
where people actually mentioned the president's name during hate crimes. And if you look at our latest report, which I, I linked to, we also had prior data um, showing how around certain political inflection points or when certain uh, invective, scapegoating invective rises, look, look at anti-Latino hate crime, 2018, hit one of the highs for the decade during the whole caravan discussion on evening television. So it's demonstrated time and time again, look at our uh, July 2019 report and look at the current report as well. There's a lot of research where you could see hate speech online dovetailing uh, with hate crimes on the street. Thank you. Brandon Brooks has his question now. Brandon, please go ahead. Um, yeah, I was asking uh, when people are found, um, I uh, was hearing some of the statistics, but it was interesting of kind of incident and hate. But when people are found to be part of hate groups or there's evidence and they work for governmental entities, state or local, are they fired or reprimanded immediately? Or do they still have some, it seems like some fundamental rights for free speech or that may need to be kind of, you know, filtered out. But it's, it seemed like there were some protections when I was hearing some of the stats that it's a little alarming to know that I think it was uh, Mr. Levin when he brought up some Oath Keepers that may have been found to still be part of some of the, uh, you know, um, I would say some of the lawful, um, you know, I would say a follow-up. It was, that's alarming to me for lack of better words, but just curious of how that may be combated or dealt with, if at all. Thank you. Well, I can tell you, and thank you for your question that, um, you know, your question points to a really important fact, which is that even though, um, you know, 11,000 in our data is a large number, uh, and we have, um, you know, 11% that include these civil rights violations, the numbers are actually much larger. So the Pew Research Center found that um, 45% of our community members had experienced some form of hate in the last few years. That equates to eight to 10 million individuals, right? So does that mean that a lot of folks in the workplace who are experiencing um, these issues are, um, uh, that they continue to happen sort of unabated? I think there is concern. I know that we have been working with the EEOC as well as with DFEH, now the Civil Rights Department, um, but we need more folks to report what's happening. Um, and um, your point specifically about law enforcement is an important one, which is the Southern Poverty Law Center has found that, uh, in fact, there's quite a bit of infiltration by uh, white supremacist groups, not only in police, um, departments across the country, but also in our military. And you saw some of that even in the insurrection that happened where a number of law enforcement individuals were involved. And, and so that's another reason that we can't rely simply on law enforcement as the solution. Uh, I will tell you that uh, as a member of the Racial Identity Profiling Advisory Board for the state of California, there's actually very troubling data in terms of how their disproportionate number of arrests and stops of African-American and Latinx men uh, particularly. So I think it's a systemic problem and one that we need uh, broad-based systemic solutions for. Thank you, Manchu. We really appreciate you being on our call. Uh, we go to our final speaker, Susana Yi. Uh, Susana, welcome back. Susana is going to speak about how we heal from hate. And I think that's a very important um, 
uh, way to end this discussion. Welcome, Susana. Good morning, everybody. Hi, thank you, Sunita. Thank you, Sandy, and everyone here. Um, my name is Susana Yi, and it's an honor to be here. I'm wanting to uh, bring into this space my grandmother, Yik Boy Huang, and just really presence uh, this ancestor who passed away in 2019 because of a very brutal attack. And I'd like to share my screen here and sh uh, just give you a brief glimpse of her life and then the uh, aftermath and then my work that was inspired by her. I will also share two initiatives um, that is part of my work and how maybe you can get involved. So are you seeing my screen here? Yes. Beautiful. This is my grandmother, Yi Or Huang, in her youth, very beautiful woman. This is her family. She's in the center here. She has um, many great-grandchildren now. She has four children. Um, yeah, child, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. She's left a, a, a large legacy. And she's waving hello to you all. <laughs> so, oh, there was an image um, I wanted to include. Uh, it's kind of graphic so if it's triggering for you i'd like to warn you now and um if you want to turn away in just a oh shoot i hope i can find it excuse me give me a second here mm, apologies okay well i'll just describe the image it was of her hooked up with um the breathing tube in, in her throat, uh, very bloodied face, body. Um, this was how we found her in the playground here in Visitation Valley. Uh, we found her at the base of this slide here, and um, she was bludgeoned with her with her cane by a 17-year-old young boy um, who is now accused of, of homicide, and uh, he is awaiting trial. Um, probably starting at the end of this year. And this has uh, sparked in me a desire to bring understanding and unity. And I practice um, Qigong. So I gathered all my Qigong buddies. And Qigong is a Chinese practice of um, wellness, breathing, connection with the earth and each other. And at this event called Move the Qi, we offer different healing modalities free of charge to um, participants. This is an example of us um, do, using plants to cleanse the body and provide also massage, acupuncture, um, very culturally specific healing tools for our com uh, diverse community. And so this initiative, um, it's, it's called Move the Chi. You can find it at um, rememberyitboyhuang.com, the second website here. And then I'll plug in uh, this next Saturday, we're having a unity celebration at the Visitation Valley Greenway. And I'll also take folks on a tour of the playground where my grandmother was found. We're renaming it Yik Oi Huang Peace and Friendship Park. We just got that approved this 
May. And so hopefully next May, which is Asian Pacific uh, Islander Heritage Month, we will have the official unva unveiling of the signage of this new um, changes from Visitation Valley Playground to Yitlor Huang Peace and Friendship Park. And it's important to note uh, that a Black elder in the community suggested this initiative, this naming, and is a very potent symbolic gesture and concrete gesture of solidarity. I'd like to highlight this quote from a Baha'i, from the Baha'i World Center of Faith um, that I'm learning more about. This bolded quote here, unity is a phenomenon of creative power whose existence becomes apparent through the effects that collective action produces and whose absence is betrayed by the impotence of such efforts. So to me, this means that as a community, such as we are here on this ethnic media services call, we have to think about creative ways to come together. And a road trip that I took with some high schoolers, five black high school teenagers and five Chinese high school teenagers this July, we went on a um, charter bus for a whole month around the country. This was amazing. We went to 16 states or cities to learn about each other's um, culture, history, uh, contributions to the United States. We um, did a lot of team bonding events, uh, activities, and I'd like to play this clip for you. They were tasked to create a dance together and perform for each of us. This is another pair. A month is a long time and conf uh, conflicts came up, of course. Communication styles were apparent. Uh, differences in communication styles were very apparent. And we, um, at the end, got to understand wh who makes us, who, um, who we are as individuals and as a collective, because we come with, um, we come with racial trauma. And so there's, um, hi, I'm back. We come with a lot of racial trauma and baggage, but when we can be frank about it in these group check-ins, we have an honest dialogue and debu start debunking stereotypes and really learn what, um, what uh, how we are experiencing life on the daily and not these, these sort of sensationalized, titles or cancellation culture, um, these buzzwords, like even anti-Blackness, oh, you are anti-Black or you are anti-Asian. These are very inflammatory words and hate begets more hate. So I encourage us to create a culture of belonging, to create, uh, to even use the word hate less, even though that is what we are studying in this um, Time, but I really encourage us to look at the language that we're using. And 
And finally, to think about this question, how do we get back to the fundamentals and how do we create a more humanizing and inclusive world? Each, us, each one of us has the power to transform our immediate street, community, school, you just got to look for the opportunities and it's all around. So my grandmother has sparked in me an awareness to reach across cultural lines and develop friendships. Um, and so I encourage you all to do the same. Thank you. Sasana, that was so beautiful. Um, I wanted to ask a final question of all of you all, which is this, what do you feel is the most effective measure to uh, counter the rising racial and ethnic hate that we are now seeing? Becky, can we start with you? Yes, I would just echo what we just heard from Sasana. I think that uh, it is really coming together across different communities to combat hate and recognizing that, um, that we are, we do have a lot of power. And I think one of the things, one of my mentors, um, Ron Wakabayashi, who used to be the head of Japanese American Citizens League um, and also was with the DOJ, used to always, you know, just to really reflect on this, that we there is a reason for hope. And that reason for hope is actually in 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 all of the people who when targeted for hate, so many communities who had every reason to give up on this country refused to and refused to give up on the the idea of making this a more just and more um a, a a place that is fair for all. So I I would just say um, I think those are all uh, critical, and my hope is that our California versus hate resource line and network will allow people to come together across communities. So thank you, and thank you all. Um, and Susanna, that was really powerful. Thank you for your for your remarks. I know it's not easy to talk about, so thank you. Thank you, Manchu. Um, will you add? Sure, sure. And I also wanted to thank Susanna for um, her remarks and sharing um her experience for us it really is about three things civil rights uh education equity and community safety so for community safety something you know broader based not just about policing but about safe housing good jobs you know living wages for education equity ethnic studies and all of our k-12 curriculum and then you know broad-based civil rights laws um, where we basically can be forward facing, do trainings when employees discriminate, you know, engage in something outside of, of mass incarceration. And let me just say too that, you know, unfortunately there haven't been any studies that show that criminal hate crimes prosecution provides any sort of deterrent for uh, future hate crimes. And so that's why I really encourage folks to think outside of simply law enforcement as the solution to all of our ills. Uh, this is a society-wide problem that requires a society whole um, solution. Thank you so much, Manju. Professor Levin. Sure, and, and just let me challenge that statement up. The data from Boston, when, <laughs> the late 70s, the Pulitzer Prize winning photo showing a black man being gored by a flag. It, it was a town where lawlessness with regard to racial hatred rule the day. We had buses that had to be escorted by motorcycle cops in the 70s. And we saw those hate crimes go from 673 down to 200 and change when we started apprehending uh, violent offenders and, and prosecuting them. Now, is that a study? I don't know. There were also no recidivists for many years. It depends on the type of offender. 
a mentally ill offender, a, a, a first offender that's generally not a recidivist. We have different directions where the hate goes and different depths of the prejudice. Uh, so you can't compare someone who spray paints something when he's drunk um, and, and is a thrill offender to someone who is a violent mission offender who shoots up grocery stores. We have to have a flexible response. And the other thing too is we're not prosecuting these things. Look at our study in Texas, what, like 20 over a decade? So the idea that we're prosecuting these things isn't really true. Justice Department uh, doesn't prosecute uh, well over 80% of the referrals. So it's not like we're, what, what I think happens is we use certain examples and it's oftentimes someone who's mentally ill or a person of color is an example of what you know uh, is going on. And the fact of the matter is hate crime offenders tend to match the arrestees of the police department in general and the, and the diversity of the particular community. And that's why uh, we see different types of attacks going on. Also, there are big gaps with regard to law enforcement data. That being said, I think, I, I think I'm in more agreement uh, than folks might think. Uh, and that is most victims are not gonna report in the most vulnerable communities. So it doesn't matter overall, right? Particular communities. We're seeing a doubling in transgender. We're seeing a record with regard to anti-Asian hate. And one of the things uh, about her just excellent study that dovetailed with our stuff. If you just take the assaults alone, Stop AAPI Hate found that they were more than double that than all the anti-Asian hate crimes that get reported to the FBI. So we know that just with the hate crimes, we're not responding to them. And then you look at the 80, 80 some odd percent more that are very aggressive, intimidating, but non-criminal incidents. These can be devastating on a community. And that's why what she's doing and what Becky is doing with regard to uh, California Civil Rights Department is so important because we wanna make sure we reach out to victims and communities where they are and in the languages they speak, whether something is a crime or not. People will change their behavior and be in fear, even if they don't understand something a crime versus something that's prosecutable. Professor Levin, thank you. Sasana, you have the final word. Thank you. I would really set aside resources for adult road trips, as well as these young people road trips. It doesn't need to be a month, but it's so helpful to see how we live in a, a, a space together. And the, um, the combinations are endless, Native Americans with Asians, uh, black and white, etc. Um, so looking at how we can really get to understand our, our human nature um, and beyond just our differences, but looking at our similarities. Thank you so much to all of our speakers for just an amazing conversation. And thank you to our reporters. Take care, everyone. You have been listening to a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services. We thank Ethnic Media Services that continues to bring us pertinent information that affects our lives every day. This is the Alvin Galloway Show, and don't forget to check us out on Facebook and also to check out our podcast. You can find us wherever you find your favorite podcast shows.
And as I always say, today is a great day to make somebody's day great. We'll see you next week. Be blessed. Stevie Wonder, love is in the need of love today. friendly announcer I have serious news to pass on to everybody what I'm about to say couldn't mean the world's disaster could change your joy and
Thank you for listening to the Alvin Galloway Show podcast. We hope you like our show. And if you do, we hope that you will show your support by sharing our podcast with others and also supporting us monetarily. No donation is too small. We thank you again, and we'll see you on the next show.